Welcoming a beautiful family from Scotland. How do you say welcome in Scottish? Welcome. That's English. <laughs> well, say that again. Fruidien. That sounds kind of like a little bit related to Dutch or something, <laughs> or Frisian or something. But it was wonderful. And, you know, uh, while Rose was talking, I felt like I was reminded about how the Lord wants to bring such a creative renaissance to us as the body of Christ. He wants to, you know, you know, in the, in the medieval days, I mean, the churches were the ones that really spawned the, the great art, Michelangelo. And, and so I just, you know, Kate's an artist too, right? She's just going to use her words to paint pictures for us today. I know that. As an English teacher, I know that the greatest English teachers are the ones that can inspire, or writers can inspire you to actually see pictures from their writing. So uh, I want to pray for her. But I just also want to take a moment to say, just look at this stained glass window and be reminded of what the worship team brought to us, that he calls us by name. He doesn't call us to be the same. He calls us by name, individually. And that truth has really, really healed me because I was a kid that always wanted to compare myself to my sister who was always smarter than me, or I thought she was. In certain areas, she certainly was. <laughs> so just let's just let that truth reside in us. And I know Kate is going to bring us into truth. So, Father, I just thank you for Kate, for Nate and Kate being such precious gifts to us in this last season. And, Lord, that you called them to bring us into transformation, to be able to be authentic Christians, to dig deeper and find out the roots and the motives of our hearts, why we do things, uh, perhaps out of anxiety so that you can bring us into peace, perhaps out of ambition so that you can give us into, bring us into contentment. But Lord, we just release Kate, because just, she's just really, really labored, and we just release her now that you would give her the same gift you gave the Apostle Paul, that utterance to bring the truth of God to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Kathleen. I'm just going to move this for a sec here. It's okay. Feel pretty far away here. Um, so thank you so much um, to Gordy and Kathleen for giving me the opportunity to speak to you this morning. Um, Nate and I were both delighted to be asked. And um, Today I'm going to talk about the intersection of mental health, faith, and hospitality, which isn't really a lot to cover in half an hour. Uh, but I'm going to speak about... Um, well, first I'm going to start with some definitions leading into some history, then some stories, and I'm going to end in scripture. So if you're waiting for the scripture, it's coming. Um, Sherry, is that the first slide? No? Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so I work at Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries, and if you'd like to know a little bit more about what we do, I've left some brochures at the back. And our mandate and mission is, let me see if I can figure this out. There we go. 
We prepare people of faith to support mental health recovery within their community. And we do this through a variety of means. We um, offer sermons, seminars, workshops. Um, we help communities start mental health ministries. And we train peer support facilitators to run support groups, um, both for people living with mental illness and for their family members in a church context. And I'm the services coordinator at Sanctuary and I'm a trained community mental health coach. Um, which means I'm trained to facilitate conversations in churches and help churches move forward with creating caring ministries. It does not mean I'm a mental health professional, so I want to say that up front. It also doesn't mean I'm an expert in any way. Um, I'm aware that there are mental health professionals who are part of this community, and I just want to acknowledge their expertise and experience, as well as um, the wealth of experience and expertise in this room, um, from personal experience, from family experience, all of us have something to contribute to this conversation. So, and I'd be willing to bet that most of us have at some point in our lives been challenged in our mental health. And I also just want to acknowledge that this can be a difficult topic and it can bring up painful emotions and, and memories. Um, so I want to just ask that you give yourself permission to feel whatever you're feeling this morning and that's okay. Um, and if you uh, are not are not okay and you need to leave the room, um, please just give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down so I know if you're all right. And if you're not all right, we'll send someone out to see if you're okay and just to, to be with you. So by way of an icebreaker, um, I'm going to get you to number off. And I'm going to get each side to number off separately because I think it's going to get confusing if we start going across the room. But if I could get you to number off, so one, two, three, four, five, and then start again, one, two, three, four, five. And then the same thing on this side, one, two, three, four, five. Um, I'm not gonna ask you to do anything except stand up if you are able. So um, you won't be asked to speak or do anything except stand if you are a number five. Does everyone feel comfortable doing that and understand what I meant? Okay, ready, set, go. So starting, maybe starting one, two, three, four, four five. There's no one standing on this side of the room. <laughs> Where's... Fives, you need to stand up. <laughs> Great. Okay. Is that, is that right? Did we get that right? Right. Okay. Good enough. Okay. Fantastic. So I want everyone to just look around, see who's standing. Okay. So in a group this size, this is the number of people you could expect to experience a mental illness in any given year, according to the Mental Health Commission of Canada. And if you look at over the course of a lifetime, the number increases to one in three. So the point in asking you to stand up is to notice that mental health problems and illnesses are common. Okay, thanks so much for standing up. It's great. But what do I mean when I talk about mental health and mental illness? So I'm going to get into some definitions here. Oops. There we go. Okay, so mental health at its most basic is a positive sense of emotional and spiritual well-being. But it's also our capacity to respond uh, to the challenges and bounce back from them. 
um, the challenges that we face in life. And all of us are somewhere between languishing and flourishing in our mental health. Um, some of us are closer to having good mental health and some of us are closer to having poor mental health. And what I mean by that is um, a positive sense of emotional, social, psychological, and spiritual well-being. What do I mean by mental illness? Mental illness uh, refers to a diagnosable condition as set out by diagnostic standards. So um, it's a medical definition. And this is an experiential definition we use often at Sanctuary. It's an internal crisis that is unmanaged and externalized. And that's what mental illness can feel like to a person who's going through it. But one thing that we like to make clear is that mental health and mental illness are not two ends of a continuum. Um, a person living with a mental illness can actually have good mental health and be flourishing. And a person without a mental illness can actually have poor mental health and be languishing. So mental illness is just one factor that affects our mental health. But living with a mental illness can make flourishing more difficult. So at Sanctuary, we have a two-part message for churches, and that is that we all need to learn how to take care of our mental health, and also that the church needs to become a place of love and support and safety for those of us who are going through mental illness and their family members. Just want to go back to defining hospitality. Gordy um, defined hospitality in this way. Hospitality is the costly act of making generous and gracious space for another. And I really like this definition because um, it's an orientation and a way of being toward others. Um, I want to add to it this definition. This comes from Craig Rennebaum. And Craig Rennebaum is a mental health chaplain in Seattle. Um, he works mainly with the street population and tries to um, companion people and bring them into loving community. And one of the practices of companioning that he outlines is hospitality. So he says, hospitality is creating safe space with another person. It's treating another person with dignity and respect, seeing the other person as a worthy and valuable human being, and lastly, offering refreshment, nourishment, a time and place to rest. So I just like how that expands on this idea of an orientation, a way of being with others. When I was preparing this talk, I was sitting at West Westminster Abbey in Mission. I was sort of somewhere off to the left there. And I was looking at this uh, great big building and Nate was doing a silent retreat. He had, was doing a silent retreat for the entire day. Um, I managed to be silent for one hour um, before I had to go and do some other things. Uh, but I was sitting there off to the left and just looking at this hefty building. It's, it's a really beautiful building. It's massive slabs of cement and really intricate um, stained glass, if you've got a chance, or if you, maybe you've been there, but it's stunning. Um, and while I was looking at this building, I was thinking about the history of the church and the history of the church with mental illness and the role the church has played over time. And I was going to give you a really long summary of that, but I decided to, to not put you through it. But just to highlight two parts, um, that there have been times in the past where the church has extended incredible hospitality uh, to people living with mental illness and mental health challenges. So um, as early as the 6th century, people living with mental illness were cared for in monasteries. 
following the example of Augustine. And when we move into the 17 and 1800s, we hear that was sort of the time of horror stories in terms of um, people being treated for mental illness, being locked away in asylums, um, being subjected to really harsh treatment like um, bleeding and purging and ice baths. So just really, really painful, traumatizing ways that people with mental illness were cared for. Um, I don't think I can even say cared for, but more like abused. Um, so at that time, the Quakers in America um, had a markedly different response. And uh, they saw mental illness as a disruption of mind and spirit. And they started something called Friends Asylums. And some of the hospitals, the mental health hospitals that exist today are um, born out of those asylums um, that the Friends created, the Quakers. And they believed that people could be cured if they were treated with kindness and respect and given a healthy environment to live. So there are definitely these points in the past where the church has done an amazing job of caring for people and offering hospitality um, at times where there wasn't adequate medical treatment. Um, in our culture and time, we've kind of veered in the other direction where the treatment of mental illness is really professionalized. Um, you've got your occupational therapists, your counselors, your psychologists, your psychiatrists. But in some ways, we've lost a bit of the role that the church has played. Um, and in some cases, the church doesn't even talk about mental illness anymore. But some of the things that we like to proclaim at Sanctuary is that the church can speak into the soul and personhood of an individual in ways that medical professionals can't. Um, So people living with depression report losing 64% of their support network in society. That's from the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Yet recovery of mental health requires community. And the church is an incredibly rich resource for community. Recovery also requires hope. And as, as uh, Rose was pointing out, her picture here, restoration and hope, um, we're people of hope. We hold on to hope. We believe in the possibility of transformation. We serve a Jesus who died and, and rose again. Um, so we can offer hope to people as they walk through mental health recovery. Research also shows us that Christian individuals with a mental illness will speak to their clergy for support and get support from their clergy before they'll reach out to mental health professionals. So the church can also play a really incredible bridging role in helping people to access resources. And yet, in our experience, um, and in my experience with Sanctuary, the church community, though often well-meaning, um, is not equipped to walk alongside people who are struggling well. And um, often, mental health and mental illness, as I mentioned, aren't talked about in our faith communities. One of the things I've appreciated so much about Gordy and also others in this community is the willingness to talk openly about mental illness or mental health challenges. I want to show you a video of some very dear people talking about their experience of church as they went through mental health recovery. And I'm going to, Cherry, do I need to change the slider? Okay, great.
they don't get it, really. I was yearning to have brothers and sisters at church. I've withdrawn from my friends, but my friends have also mostly not tried to contact me, and that's been very difficult. I was Um, one area is loneliness. They don't get it, really. I was yearning to have brothers and sisters at church. I've withdrawn from my friends, but my friends have also mostly not tried to contact me, and that's been very difficult. I was craving for a sense of belonging. I was hoping that the church would openly talk about mental illness. I do not know, is it safe to talk about my needs? And is it safe to ask for help? Because that wasn't there, I felt very alone. I don't recall ever hearing a pastor speaking a sermon about it or there'd be other discussion or announcements about it. It was only when I started to discover others struggling with the same mental illness as me that I felt encouraged because I'm not alone in my struggle and I had others that I could talk to that understood what was happening to me and it was a huge step in my recovery. And it, it has to do with all of us acknowledging our brokenness and not trying so much to look like we're well put together, shiny, nice people, but really bringing to the table our transparency and our brokenness so that we can love each other and understand each other better and then go out there and love the world, you know? That's, that's what I'd like to see happen. I discovered Christian uh, support groups for mental illness that I realized that, hey, God's really there for me and my prayer life has changed. And now is the beginning of my new story and God is the author of it. And it's gonna be amazing. Um, any reactions to that? What, what came to mind for you when you heard those stories? Loneliness, how much we avoid. Right. So someone you know has lost everybody. Yeah. And loneliness, I heard Kathleen saying, did you say something, Veronica? No, okay. Any other comments? Glad we're talking about it, right? Yep. So people not necessarily having the skills to be able to walk alongside and being scared or, yeah, great. Okay, so I found it really difficult to hear about the isolation and disconnection that these, um, one of those people is my friend, uh, Roger. 
And uh, not knowing if it was safe to talk, losing friends, the lack of openness around sharing vulnerably. Um, and I think much of what they say highlights a bit of the absence of hospitality, um, of welcome and safe and gracious space in the church. Um, and I just want to say that I think this church is actually an incredibly safe and gracious space. Um, yep. <laughs> yep. Um, but that's not the case everywhere. And, and there are things that we can all learn. Um, for me, this video also highlights the presence of stigma, which is present in our culture. Um, and stigma is a mark of disgrace associated with a particular circumstance, quality, or person, leading to all of those sort of feelings and experiences that are on the right-hand side of the screen. And there are probably ways that all of us have experienced this kind of thing, shame, um, maybe because of something we weren't or a group we were part of. Um, I think it's generally a human experience, but, but people who have been diagnosed with a mental illness often really experience this. Um, this disgrace associated with, um, with being unwell mentally. Um, when Nate and I lived in Abbotsford, uh, which is about two years ago now? Yeah, so, and we, seven years ago, I think, is when we moved there. Okay, six years ago. Okay, um, we'd come from Korea and moved to Abbotsford. Um, and, uh, we were part of a church community where we met uh, this young woman uh, whose mother went missing while we were there. And her mother was this incredibly caring, gracious woman. Um, she was a pastor's wife. She'd been to Bible school. Um, she really, really wanted God to use her in her community. Um, and she went missing. And um, we discovered when she went missing that she had, in fact, been living with bipolar disorder. And... Um, in a moment when she couldn't manage that, um, she, she left and Nate and I were involved in searching um, for her and uh, the search went on for about three months and they did find her body um, three months later. Um, and this experience really uh, impacted us. It impacted obviously her family, the community. And it really made me ask the question, was she in a faith environment where she could even actually talk about that experience living with bipolar, where she could get support? And I don't actually know the answer to that, but my guess is that she didn't, um, didn't have that. And that's part of the reason that I got involved with Sanctuary and helping to try and open the conversation so that people who are suffering and struggling aren't doing it alone. Um, Another experience that happened in Abbotsford when we lived there, um, Nate and I had come from a really stressful year in Korea. It was unbelievable. If you want to hear some stories, ask us about that year. Um, but uh, it was very stressful. We moved to Abbotsford. We didn't know anyone there. We didn't have friends or family. We were pretty isolated. We started jobs where we didn't have the same schedule. Um, I was working in a Korean educational institution, again, which was very stressful. And I was also drinking caffeinated beverages, which I don't do anymore. 
But I started to experience panic attacks, and these would happen in the middle of the night. I would wake up, and I would have this incredible sense that I was just going to die. And I would have to lie on the floor and do breathing exercises, and Nate would be like, what the heck do I do? Um, but this happened quite a lot. And uh, thankfully, it doesn't happen anymore, and I haven't experienced this in three years. But um, at that time, we were part of a faith community where we heard this message preached, if you're struggling with anxiety or depression, you're doing something wrong in your relationship with God. And that actually just made me angry, but I think it was actually pretty damaging for others. And I think that's kind of the added stigma that can be in place in a church, is that we think there are reasons why people are unwell. We think there might be sin or there might be unfaithfulness or there might be demons. And so we have this added level of stigma, which makes it really hard for people to talk. Today, I want to talk about um, a woman in scripture who walked with an incredible weight of stigma and shame on her shoulders. And that story is in Luke uh, chapter 8, verses 40 to 48. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So here is Jesus en route to heal a man's daughter, not just any man, but an important man. Jairus, the ruler of the local synagogue. And the multitudes are surrounding him and trying to get close to him, and perhaps they want to see this miracle that they believe he's about to perform. And there in the midst of the crowd is a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And in Jewish culture, women um, were considered ritually unclean when they were menstruating and kept apart from others. So this woman would have been considered unclean for 12 years. So it wouldn't have been acceptable for her to even be in public mixing with people, um, to worship at the temple, or even to have her husband touch her. So according to the law, she was unclean, impure, and untouchable. Imagine the shame of being considered unclean for 12 years. Imagine the loneliness and the isolation she must have felt. 
Not only did she face social exclusion, but she also experienced the physical anguish of bleeding for 12 years. So I really think this picture kind of captures the desperation and also just this um, anguish that she must have felt and sort of the darkness that she's emerging from as she reaches out to touch Jesus. A friend of mine uh, shared with me a story this week and told me I could share it with you. And this is um, one of my good friends. She's a really lovely, wise woman. And uh, she told me that when we were discussing this story, that when she was in theology school, that she bled for eight months. And what she said was it felt like her insides had turned to mush and the life was literally draining out of her. And that what is often seen as a place of strength and power and identity for women, the center of your body, sort of your fulcrum, um, was instead for her a place of weakness and vulnerability. And she was constantly afraid that she would bleed through her clothing and that someone would notice. So she lived in fear of this for eight months. And she said, when we were talking about this story, I cannot imagine what that would be like to bleed for 12 years. How did she keep going? And this was at a time when, you know, women didn't have access to conveniences we have today. And I think even men can probably relate to the idea that if you were bleeding for 12 years in some way, that you would feel like life is being drained out of you. Um, the woman in the story had also spent all her money trying to find a cure, and she desperately tried every doctor she knew only to be let down every single time. So here she is, isolated from her community, coping with an ongoing medical crisis for which there is no cure and without any resources left. And I think it's fair to say, or perhaps assume, that she might have been languishing, that um, her mental health, her sense of emotional, spiritual well-being might not have been very good. After experiencing rejection, shame, isolation, and disillusionment, I believe she was exhausted. And yet, she finds the courage to reach out and touch Jesus, hoping beyond hope that she will be healed. And Jesus doesn't let her go unnoticed. He asks, who touched me? And you know, Peter, as Peter tends to do, points out, well, Jesus, look, like, you know, you're surrounded by hundreds of people. You've probably be been touched by many of them. Um, but that's not Jesus' point. Um, he persists, you know, somebody touched me. Why does he ask that? You know, I think it's a strange question because Jesus knows who touched him, you know? He's, he's God. He knows. Um, but I really believe that he was saying, I see you. And also, in asking her, he draws this woman out of her place of silence and exclusion. And she comes terrified and trembling, um, perhaps fearful. She's broken the laws around ritual purity here. Um, and falling down before Jesus, but also in the view of her entire community. And I imagine the people sort of standing in a circle around her and around Jesus, and I think in this beautiful grace-filled moment, Jesus creates this generous, safe space for her to tell her story to her community. And it says she, sh um, I cut that part out, but, she shares about her 12 years of suffering and her community hears her story and her testimony of Jesus healing her. And then he, Jesus says to her daughter, so Jesus had been on his way to heal another man's daughter, an important man's daughter. 
Uh, yet he stops en route to heal this woman and ensure she knows that she is a daughter too, whose suffering has not gone unnoticed. She is part of God's family, significant, important, and welcomed. And with this one word, daughter, he offers her grace, acceptance, and love. Then he says to her, be of good cheer, your faith has made you well. And he lifts her up as an example of faith, not only to the crowd, but also for us today and for all time. In this story, Jesus doesn't follow the rules and regulations, but offers the woman radical hospitality. He creates a safe, dignified, gracious space for her. And he stops what he's doing in the midst of this bustling crowd to draw this woman who has suffered so greatly with the weight of stigma and shame into a place of total acceptance and community. He heals her in every possible way, physically, mentally, spiritually, and socially. And I just love the orientation of Jesus toward this woman. And I think it's a beautiful picture for us as we consider how to walk with those who've been marginalized in our society. Like the woman in the story, if we are experiencing a mental illness or struggling with our mental health, we often feel ashamed. Often we feel, as you heard in the video, separated and isolated from community. Like the woman who had become known as the woman with the issue of blood, we feel defined or limited by a diagnosis. And like the woman, many have experienced years of anguish that's, gone, that's not been noticed. Jesus offers this woman dignity and welcome. He says, you matter to me and you matter to your community. He says, your story matters. And he says, you're a daughter. In the family of God, we don't see people as diagnoses. We see people as children of God, daughter, son, mother, father, sister, brother. And one of the most beautiful things I've seen happen in churches is people who are living with mental illness or a mental health challenge being able to share their story as a gift in community and actually help others along. Um, one of the first events I went to that Sanctuary offered was a, an event for pastors and leaders. And um, at that event, people living with mental illness shared what it was like in their faith community, what helped them, what didn't help them as they walked through their journey, and taught these pastors um, how they could create more welcoming communities. Also, um, one of the women there taught this whole group of pastors um, a process for dealing with their own anxious thoughts. So people who have walked through mental illness often have great resources, skills, and strategies for being well that we can all learn from. Like the woman in the story, people have a gift to offer their community. And listening to another's story creating generous space for another to speak their truth and their wisdom and share what God has done. This kind of listening is holy work. One expression of hospitality might be an invitation to follow Jesus in caring for precious people who may be marginalized for any reason, including poor mental health, and creating space for them to tell their stories and receive healing in community. 
So the questions I want to leave you with today are, who might God be calling you to create gracious and generous space for? Whose story might you need to hear? And what story might God be inviting you to share with your community? There are a couple more questions on the back of the bulletin. Um, one is a practice uh, from the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course that Gordy has been talking about and plugging and that we're really excited to be offering in the fall. Um, it's called Taking Stock, and it's a series of questions um, that you can ask before God um, to assess your own emotions. Um, I was going to run through this, but I'm going to leave this for you to do on your own. Um, it says, what am I worried about? What am I mad about? What else am I mad about? Um, what am I sad about? What am I glad about? And it's just a practice to reflect with Jesus and allow him to show you what emotions you might be feeling um, and to process them with him. And the idea is that unless we are willing to manage our own emotions, they're going to leak over top of people that we're actually trying to walk alongside. So this is about... Um, managing ourselves as well as listening to others. And we need to, we need to process and only in order to create that gracious space for others. So I'll leave you with that activity to do on your own. I highly recommend it. It's a practice that um, I find really positive for my own mental health. Um, and I'm just going to pray for us in closing. Oh, and Kathleen's going to, did you want to share? Okay. Okay. So let's pray. Jesus, you stepped into the lives of the marginalized with your loving presence. Help us to follow you there. Our tendency may be to move away or avoid what we do not understand and what we fear. Jesus, help us manage our own anxieties so that we can love well. Jesus, help us, like you, to welcome strangers into community and to listen well to their stories. And we thank you that we are all part of your family, daughters and sons who belong to you. Amen. Thank you very, very, very much, Kate. The stories are very, very tender and very, uh, I think, realistic. And um, when she, Kate was sharing, I was reminded of when Gordy and I first started going up to Lower Post, to the reserve, inviting people to come into a healing circle, and when we started to open up the opportunity for people to share, some of the people <clears throat> just jumped up and screamed and ran out of the room. And I thought, what's going on? I didn't, you know, so immediately, if you are, I'm not a Pentecostal, but because I've been around a lot of those guys, I think, is this a demon or what's going on, right? Of course, then you realize when you talk to people, because we've been going up for more than 20 years, People said it was so painful for them to listen to the stories of others because they identified with it, the residential school abuse. Um, that it was so painful they just couldn't handle it. So that's why they screamed because no one's ever listened to them. They've tried to just cope with it by suppressing. So I realized, uh, along with my own family's journey, my son and my, my husband particularly, you don't have to be a professional to create authentic space. What you have to do is really care that you want to hear what people are 
going through. And have you ever been in a conversation and you know someone really doesn't want to listen? They're sort of pretending that they're there and they're sort of looking over your shoulder and you know, this person, I'm not going to talk to this person. They're looking for somebody more glamorous to talk to than me. I'm just, you know, a fly on the wall. So I think we're learning how in this community to really learn how to listen, learn how to ask questions and really care. And I, I just really appreciate what you are bringing to the table because I'm looking forward to the fall where we're going to be having more tools to teach us how to be still and the value of listening and the value of discerning. So thank you so much. Rose, did you have something? I was very struck that um, when it comes to mental health that we can feel powerless to know what to do because it's so big and it seems like this bottomless well uh, that we just can't possibly, we don't know what we're doing. Um, but I wanted to remind you that God has given every one of us a, a capacity to be compassionate, to be restorative. And so maybe your role is merely to send a text because it's safe, it's limited, to say, hey, I was thinking of you today, and I want you to know I'm praying for you. If you feel you can go one step beyond that, you could say, I have a half an hour. Can I drop by? Or, if you want it safe, can we go out for coffee? You can create healthy boundaries for yourself and still create capacity to care, to be restorative, to bring hope, to bring life to somebody who's not just has mental health issues, but who lives in isolation, who has a brain injury, who has cerebral palsy, somebody who can't leave their house for a variety of reasons, because everybody's busy, everybody has too much to do, but a text is instant and it's easy. Right. So just maybe you don't want to take them for caffeine. <laughs> Maybe for rooibos, and we learn, like some of us, like me, I can only have coffee in the morning, or I'm totally freaked out all night. Uh, Anna's going to share, I was also reminded about how when we get together in our family, Gordy and I, and then we have our four grandchildren and Marcus and Dee, it's, it's mayhem. So like, in other words, everybody wants to talk, we're all verbal. So we're learning how, like, to pull out the talking stick. Otherwise, we're desperate. We, we, we're always interrupting each other. So, I mean, I'm also cognizant of how in our own families we have to take gracious hospitality and learn how to, hey, Annalise is trying to, been, she's been trying to talk uh, for the last 40 minutes. <laughs> and she's just given up because she knows that she's never going to get a chance. Right? Because somebody also always steps up and talks. So I think we're committed to also listening to our children and listening to one another in our families. Anna, you had something you wanted to share. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This whole thing very much kept churning because um, I went through clinical depression some 25, 26 years ago, and um, um, the pills were not helping. 
the psychologist wasn't helping actually and at one point I asked him, I said, um, so what do you have to offer p apart from God? And he looked at me and he said, nothing. So that was my last visit with him. And um, <laughs> anyways, I don't want to make it too long, but this be love, that really, really speaks to me because what happened to me was um, by this point I'm talking about, I was barely holding it together. I would be standing in the church just like this, just trying to hold it together so that I don't start just bleeding all over the place, right? And, um, and I'm not blaming the church. <laughs> um, but um, what I'm trying to say is we need to be so tuned to God, not only to each other, but to God. Because what happened to me was one Sunday when I'm standing there like that, um, a lady who wasn't really friend like we knew each other, you know, casually and all that, after the service, she came over to me and she said, um, I looked at you during the service, and instead of you, your body, what I saw was this vase, this big oriental vase that was cracked to tiny little pieces, and it was about to fall apart. Does it say mean anything to you? And I started bawling. And I just, I just lost it at that point. And um, she, sorry, sorry, I can't help but get emotional about this because she offered to meet with me every single week until I was better. She committed to that. We, we, so we did that, and we did that for over a year. For over a year, every week, she listened to me, she prayed with me, and that's where my, my healing came, just out of that. We didn't do anything spectacular. I, dropped, I could drop the pills and everything, and thank God, as I say, it's been 25, 24, 25 years, and I, I have been healed. Never came back. It never came back. Amen. It tries. But you know what? When God heals us, we can stand on it. And we can fight. Yeah. I just want to say, Anne is the first person I'll go to. I, Anne is one of the first people I go to when I'm like really in need of prayer and really in need of healing. And, and have, have you ever heard her share that story before? Never. We've known her for years. And so I think that's what Jesus meant. If you're going to, you know, you must lose your life. Like, we always are trying to hold it together. Like, I've spent years trying to do that, you know. And uh, we, have to, we have to let it go, as they say in Frozen, as my granddaughters sing, let it go. And, and where do we let it go? We have to let it go with safe people and safe places. And she was a safe person for you. I just wanted to say, Anna, thank you for the gift of your story. It was really beautiful and just see so much hope there. And you've offered hope to a to people here. So thank you for sharing that. That's really awesome. So with that, I guess that's the benediction. I guess we can continue the, you know, we to continue to walk. That's the other thing I think is really important that we don't quit. I mean, 
I mean, we've been here, for I don't know how many years, Gordy and I, and you guys will have to kick us out of here, probably on a stretcher or something, but we are just very committed, and that was the healing that came to my husband and my son, is that we were just committed to not quitting, to keep going and let the Lord continue to bring healing, even if it takes 20 years. Merrick, I, I think, do you want to quickly share before? Okay. So, do you think, yes, okay. Go, come up. Mm -hmm. Here's a story. This, this is a new chapter, I think, in our church. We're, we're walking into more and more emotional and mental health. Okay. Uh, well, maybe some of you already know, but I, I came back from Germany after two years of a postdoc there. I was studying math and physics, and it was very... It was very traumatic. Well, it was not, it went maybe not traumatic, but very stressful because I wanted to, you know, get into it. And they, eat, they would eat and breathe and sleep mathematical physics there, so I was getting into that. But because of the stress, I got into, uh, uh, I had to take, you know, multiple weeks off. I switched my, where I lived and pretty stressed out. So I was probably near a nervous breakdown. And I was afraid to talk about it because of fear, fear of being stereotyped, fear of being thought. I, I, you know, losing my job, you know, basically, because, you know, depending on my mental health. But um, I, I was just remembering, as you were talking, that right in the middle of that, my sister called from Canada, and she said, um, along with my mom, and they just said three things, you know, be with people, uh, eat well, get plenty of food, which I, and all these reasons, and then also get plenty of rest, sleep, or just, because I wasn't doing those things, and it was just... It was, it was exacerbating the situation, making it worse, right? Yeah. So that's all I wanted to say. Thanks. We're kind of relieved that he didn't teach us on the theoretical uh, theory of the black hole. <laughs> so that's great. We love, we love being here. Thanks, Merrick. Next time. <laughs> He's got his hand up again. Um, we just thank you again, Kate. And we all invite you to actually even go a little bit closer to finding safe people, finding safe places to share your stories. And um, it's just wonderful to be here with you all and just to, to know that this is what we're committed to. And thanks for this time, Kate. So, Lord, we just bless our time, not only when we come together, but when we feel like we're walking alone Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Help us, Lord, find the courage to invite others into those areas, particularly where we are feeling discouraged, distressed, depressed. Lord, <coughs> there's nothing to hide except to open it up so that you can come in through others and uh, bring healing. In Jesus' name, amen. So do the parents know what to do about ki the kids in the park? You have to pick them up there. Okay. Thanks, Karen.